0: Six years ago, Hajuj Kuka won the People's Choice Documentary Award at the Toronto International Film Festival. Last week, in his home country of Sudan, he was sentenced to prison. Now we focus on what comes next. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Hajuj Kuka was born in Sudan, raised in the United Arab Emirates, and went to college in the United States. Then he moved back to Sudan, where he's practiced both filmmaking and activism. His film that won the People's Choice Award is called Beats of the Antonov. It chronicles Sudanese rebels in the Nuba Mountains and Blue Nile, who are targeted for aerial bombing by the government of Omar al-Bashir. The Antonov of the film title is the name of the cargo plane the government used for dropping bombs. huge captures harrowing moments of warfare, but the film is balanced by laughter and music.
1: <laughs>
0: Beats of the Antonov was praised in variety as, quote, an exemplar of how filmmakers can give dignity to refugees by allowing them their names and their voices, end quote. I met Hajuj in Toronto when his documentary played in 2014, and we've crossed paths in New York in brief encounters. He's a gentle figure with piercing eyes and an easy smile. He described his filmmaking two years ago on a podcast for The Guardian.
1: The power of doing a documentary is the surprise you have when you interview people and they say something and you're like, that's so true. That's my experience. And I didn't realize until I was interviewing somebody. And there he's like, yeah, every time there's a bombing, people start laughing. And I was like, oh, that is true. That's what I do, actually. I start laughing. And it's just that joy that I'm still alive. Everybody's still alive. Like, we're we're still good. We're still good. The way he described it is like, it's like this pain and suddenly... There's life again, and and we laugh. We're happy. We're excited about life.
0: Beats of the Antonov went on to play in the United States on public television's POV series. His more recent film is a work of fiction, an offbeat comedy set in Sudan called Akasha that played at the Venice and Toronto festivals in 2018. Hajuj is a member of the Academy of Motion Pictures that signed on to a statement calling for his release. This comes at a time when Sudan has undergone some positive developments. President al-Bashir was brought down in a coup last year after months of protests, ending his 30-year reign. He's currently being sought by the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity. Sudan is now run by a transitional government that has moved away from the hardline Islamicist tendencies that were once more prevalent. So it was unsettling in August, when Hujuj and other artists were arrested on dubious charges over disturbing the peace in Khartoum. It was more shocking on September 17th when Hajuj and four colleagues were sentenced to two months in prison without bail. Now they await an appeals process that could take another week or more. My guest on this episode is Stephen Markovitz. He's a South African producer who's brought many African directors to international attention through his company, Big World Cinema. His roster includes Hajuj. I reached Steven at his home outside of Cape Town four days after Hajuj went to prison. I started by asking Steven to talk about Beats of the Antonov.
1: I think what Hajij, uh, his main thing was that he was making a, a documentary about a war, um, uh, but he didn't want to make a depressing film. You know, in terms of the narrative of Africa, there have been so many films made about, oh, look what a mess it is, and people look so sad. And that he wanted to make a film which countered that narrative. And so while people were being bombed and persecuted, they were actually celebrating their culture and their music and finding strength through that. So it was very much a reclaiming of their cultures uh, as opposed to just being victims of uh, oppression and war.
0: And can you talk about his character? What What are the things that, as you got to know him, you know, made you want to invest your time in supporting him?
1: Well, Hajjaj is a, a unique individual. He is very zen, very calm, very much knows what he wants, uh, very respectful. Uh, has really kind of got his ego in check. He's he's a very kind of he's quite an evolved soul, and I very seldom come across uh, 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 filmmakers who are so at peace with themselves. Uh, I mean, we all, as filmmakers, we often carry a lot of neurosis with us, and uh, had has worked through a lot of that. So you know, he's someone. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He's a vegan. Uh, he does yoga, meditation. He's a, he, you know, some people call him a Sudanese hippie. I think that's a bit simplistic, um, but he's he's that kind of person, and he's incredibly committed to bringing about uh, democracy in in Sudan. And has been an activist for many years. And He's very he was very quiet about it. But it turns out, you know, he's one of the leaders of a, a nonviolent youth movement, which has hundreds of thousands of members and played a key role in overthrowing uh, al-Bashir. Uh, so he's an incredibly principled activist uh, also.
0: So for uh, people who don't follow what's happening in Sudan, maybe they know that uh, the leader uh Omar al-Bashir was overthrown uh last year in 2019 in uh, in a coup um you know can you fill in the 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 backdrop of what's been going on in the last year and you know what kind of activities Hajuj and uh and and his movement have been focused on <laughs>
1: Well, I think what's interesting about what happened in Sudan is, you know, next year is the 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring. And if we look at how most uh, situations turned out in countries, uh, you know, they often turned to violence and ended up often worse off than they were before. Um, Whereas I think Sudan was quite unique because there was a nonviolent, peaceful revolution. There was some, uh, you know, the the Al-Bashir regime did kill quite a few people, but it was not uh, on the scale of a mass civil war. So they managed to have a relatively peaceful transition, and there now is a civilian government in coalition with the military as a transitional government for two years, and the idea is within those two years, to have a democratic election uh, uh, to bring about uh, like a new dispensation in the country. Haj and his groups played uh, and the, his group and other other uh, uh, groups in in Sudan played an instrumental role in bringing down al Bashir by having mass protests and uh, they occupied a square for a considerable period of time and kind of set up. An alternative vision of Sudan. They had a hospital, they had food, they had uh, social workers, kind of set up how young people, many young people would like society to be. And it ended up eventually, uh, uh, al-Bashir sent in the military and attacked uh, the, the the square and a number of people died. Hajjaj was beaten up. Uh, he, he had head injuries. He lost all his equipment, all his hard drives. Uh, and, and then he, on the 30th of June last year, he had this idea that, you know, it was actually the 30th anniversary of uh, al-Bashir coming to power. And he had this idea of, like, having a mass protest, even at the time when everyone was scared and they built up enough courage to come out on the streets. And that event was a turning point in bringing down uh, the al-Bashir regime.
0: Let me go to the incident that took place uh, in last month in, uh, in August that precipitated this case uh, that has landed him in prison now. Uh, can you describe what was going on last August?
1: Sure, yeah. Hadjuj, with a number of people, formed a group called Civic Lab, which was doing kind of civic work as well as theater workshops. And they rented a space and were doing rehearsals in the space, and then some of the local Islamists stopped them and got, attacked them and called the police, who the police basically didn't intervene when they were being attacked. And it seems like, it hasn't been said, but it seems like the main reason that, that their rehearsal was broken up was that it was not men's only. There were women and men participating in that, and that that created the real tension. They were then taken to prison, uh, and in the prison, the one female artist who was arrested was beaten up in front of everyone by a policeman, and that created incredible tension, and, uh, and she was knocked to the ground and... Uh, the uh, the other artists, including our judge, tried to intervene to protect her, and then they started singing songs, and then they were charged with disturbing the police disturbing the peace in a police station. Uh, that was the charge against them. Uh, they were um, yeah, they kind of, they got bail and they split the groups groups up into a group of five, which includes Hajjuj, and there's another group of six artists who are uh, facing trial on Thursday this week. And uh, they've been appeared in court five or six times, and you know normally something like this might be carried with a fine or something like that, and uh, much to their shock, the judge sentenced them to two months in prison. Uh, which they are now appealing through the courts.
0: So when this went to trial last week and this sentence came down, it was not what anyone expected?
1: No, no, it was totally unexpected. Uh, The the lawyers were very confident that they would get off and that there wasn't really a case. Uh, And uh, it seems like there has been, you know, there are factions within the government who are orchestrating this, and there are other factions who, who would support Hajjuj artists. So, you know, with transitional governments, it's often quite a messy process, and you kind of have this coalition of forces pushing and pulling. And I think what's happened here is Hajjuj artists have got caught up in that dynamic.
0: There was a report that Hajjuj had been beaten in prison. Can uh, you describe what you understand in, in, of that situation?
1: Yeah, what happened is I think it was the first day they were uh, moved to prison. Uh, firstly, they were sentenced and they were not given the option of bail. So they were taken straight to prison. And in the prison, Hajjaj was uh, beaten by by some of the guards and they cut off some of his dreadlocks. As you know, you've met Hajjaj; he's got dreadlocks down to his ankles. Uh, they cut off some of his dreadlocks and he was beaten and uh and what happened is we got that news out quite quickly and there was quite a big outcry and that information got to the government and what's happened now is the national head of prisons went to the prison and is now has now based himself at this prison and has changed the conditions of all prisoners in that prison to improve conditions Uh, in in a far more equitable way. And uh, so, in fact, what hajjuj went through has led to an improvement of the conditions in the prison.
0: Can you describe the movement that's happening now to calling for the release of uh, Hajjuj and the other four artists?
1: Well, at the moment, we we're getting uh, there's a lot of support uh, uh, around uh, this cause, and we've seen all a lot of major festivals signing up um, uh, t- to support this. Uh, Sundance, Toronto, Berlin, Venice, IDFA and and various other festivals and institutions have signed on to this, uh, and we also know a number of uh, foreign governments are also have also approached the Sudanese government around this. Uh, and we saw, also saw an amazing gesture by, by Cameron Bailey in Toronto, where in the middle of the festival, uh, Cameron, or well actually towards right at the end of the festival, Cameron uh, decided to show both Beats of the Antonov and Akasha at Toronto as an act of solidarity. Uh, and so at the moment, there are people from all quarters approaching us who want to help. And I think it's important, you know, I was talking this morning uh with the activist group who Hajj is working with uh about the case. And it's important to note the position that Hajj and the artists are taking is that they want justice. They they it's not as simple as them being freed. They want they want justice, they want to take this through the courts and they want to win the case because they feel that if They just get let out of prison and and get amnesty uh, because there's a lot of attention on their case. That's obviously going to be seen as the reason they got out. But the average person who's being sent to jail often unjustly will not have that luxury. So they want to. They want the court to acknowledge that uh, these charges uh, uh, must be dropped, and for the court, they want to win the appeal to try and get the justice system working in the country.
0: You described the period of transitional government uh, in Sudan with different uh, factions. Um, do you have any indication that international pressure uh, on this case is is meaningful to to people who can make a difference in the case?
1: Definitely, I think there's. I think just the example of the way the director of prisons went there and uh, and improved prison conditions. that was a direct result. of of global pressure um, on on the Sudanese government. And I think what you've got to remember is that this government has taken over from an incredibly brutal regime, and they've really determined to change the image of Sudan. You know, at the moment, they're trying to get ambassadors recognized. they're They're trying to improve the human rights record. They're trying to change the image of Sudan, and there are a lot of good progressive people who are working on that. Um, so I think the, the the government is incredibly sensitive to outside criticism because they don't want to be seen as associated uh, with the previous regime. They want to make a clean break from that. So I think there is definitely the government is feeling the pressure uh, every day.
0: So in some of the local reporting I've read about the case, it indicates that There's one mood uh, in the national government, but within the judicial system, um, there are holdovers from the previous regime with a more of an Islamist uh, bent. And that is part of the explanation for why these artists got a harsh uh, sentence, even though there are other factions in the government that may not want to uh, be so harsh.
1: That's absolutely the case. I think I'd add a third faction, and that would be the military itself, which has its own power base that it's trying to build. So there is there's a big faction of, of people who were part of the previous regime. There's the new civilian government, mainly at the top. But throughout the kind of echelons of the state uh, apparatus, it still is pretty much the same people who were part of the, uh, the al-Bashir regime. So there's a real tension between those three factions.
0: Well, I'm curious: was Hujuj working on any
1: new films? Yes, we're busy developing two films together, two feature films. He's also working on a smaller documentary on the side, uh, but he is in—he's in active development on two feature films. But you know, when the revolution started, he was like very much like now I'm an activist. I'll come back to being a filmmaker. So I've been sitting around waiting for him to overthrow the regime and then we can get on with making films again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, uh, you know, while we're talking about Hajuj, uh, I want to ask you about your wider work in producing uh, films from Africa. Um, you know, here in North America, we've seen a, a trickle of films uh, coming from... Uh, African directors uh, that may be a trickle, but it's it's more than we would have seen uh, 10 or more years ago. I think of this year at the Sundance Film Festival, there was the film Softy from Kenya Uh, just last week at the Toronto Film Festival from Congo was uh, Diodo uh, Hamadi's film uh, downstream uh, to Kinshasa. Uh, last year at the Berlin Film Festival, there was another film from Sudan that uh, won the top documentary prize, talking about trees. Um, can you you just describe what's been happening in, uh, in in Africa that's been allowing more homegrown cinema?
1: Yeah, I think it's a it's a really exciting phase that that African film is in, uh, entering into, and it is quite hard to generalize because there obviously is specific dynamics in each country, and some countries are producing a lot more than others. But I think a couple of things have happened is that what I'm seeing is that the the current generation of filmmakers are now one or two, gener- two often two generations from uh, the, the kind of colonial era. And uh, so they don't have the kind of issues that their parents had or the filmmakers from the 70s and 80s and 90s uh, who were very much reacting to the fall of colonialism and the beginning of these these new countries. They they kind of, in a way, are much more kind of global in their thinking, but also I find an incredible sense of uh, um, uh, kind of connection to their culture and, and, and localising thing. is almost a reaction against, uh, you know, the kind of uh, cultural domination of America and Europe on Africa for so many years. And at the same time, I think in, I've been producing now for 25 years, I think I've never seen this much interest in African cinema as I do at the moment. Uh, and I think specifically from, from uh, the United States, There's a lot more interest than there was before. And and I think also what's happening is what I've seen in the last five or six years is quite a few African-based film funds popping up, which are supporting local filmmakers. And I think it's giving a lot more power to to African filmmakers. and, And that kind of imbalance that's always been there is starting to shift. Because, you know, if you look at the history of African cinema over the last 50, 60 years, uh, you would see the majority of those films were o- are owned by Europe. And, and I think there's now beginning to be a shift in the ownership patterns, which I think is impacting on the kind of films that are being made. So I think it's still tough. It still takes a long time to get films made. And some films are still unrealized. But I think more and more, we're seeing far more uh, developed and, and polished films and and films that can work both locally and have a, a global audience. So, so I'm feeling very positive about the current situation.
0: Right now, it's been a few days since uh, Hujuj has been in uh, prison. There's a, every day, there's kind of more attention being uh, brought to it. Um, what's your you know, personal feeling about how this is going to go?
1: I think what I think it's a precedent-setting case in, in the new Sudan. I don't think there's been anything like this in the new Sudan, and I think it's a test of this new coalition government, how they handle this. My feeling is I'd be very surprised if they don't win the appeal. I, I think it's most likely they're going to win the appeal, and it will set a precedent uh, on how people are dealt with by the the police and the judicial system. I don't think one case will change things overnight, but I think given the attention this case has got, uh, I think there's a really good chance this can start helping to shift that dynamic between these three factions in the country and bring about a more equitable way of uh, dealing with justice and uh, in the country. So, so I'm feeling optimistic that there will be a positive outcome to this.
0: I want to thank Stephen Markovitz for speaking with me. You can check our show notes to follow Stephen on Twitter and monitor the latest developments for Hajuj Kuka. Thanks to the International Coalition for Filmmakers at Risk and all the other individuals working to free Hajuj and his colleagues. You can join those efforts using the hashtag release the Thanks to our team. Series producer, Anna Nordenswan and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at t-h-o-m powers you can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net